Well, I'd like to begin today by asking married couples two questions, or anyone aspiring to be married as you wait on God. And the first is this. What are you hoping to get out of marriage? What I mean is we, go, we all go into marriage with certain expectations, don't we? And we want our marriage to look a certain way. We want it to feel like this. We want it to have this impact. We want it to achieve this end. We expect our marriage to be a specific thing, this specific thing, and not that other thing. So what are you hoping to get out of marriage? What do you want your marriage to look like? Which then leads to my second question. What role, if any, do you believe the gospel might play in achieving that end. What God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin and in consequence will accomplish in the new Jerusalem, what does that have to do with your marriage, Christian, on a day-to-day basis? On the level of husbandly love and wifely submission, on the level of behavioral expectations, and heart motivation. This is why I've entitled our sermon, Gospel-Centered Marriage. Because at the center of Ephesians 5, the key New Testament text on marriage, at at its very center is the gospel itself. And it's no exaggeration, this is no gross reductionism to say that our marriage will be more God-honoring or less God-honoring or even downright dishonoring to God, depending on that one all-important factor, gospel-centeredness. Now, gospel-centeredness has lately become something of a buzzword, but we're going to figure out what it means, and then this week and next, Lord willing, we're going to apply it to married life. We're going to apply it to husbands sacrificially loving their wives for their good, just as Christ loved the church. We're going to apply it to wives selflessly submitting to their husbands in everything, just as the church submits to Christ. Because, let's be honest, the gospel does not automatically reside by default at the center of any of our marriages. I mean, who has that sort of relationship? Not Pastor John and his wife, I'll tell you that right now. We all have to work hard. God's grace assisting us to get the gospel to the center of married life. And then we have to work hard to keep it there year after year after year. So I'd like to begin today in Ephesians 5, verse 31, which is almost at the end of the passage. So would you turn with me there, please? Ephesians 5, verse 31. Paul basically concludes, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. So as the Apostle Paul comes to the end of his teaching on marriage in this passage, he springs a big surprise. And I want to start here before we come to things like headship and submission, uh, because it's these last few verses that give us the framework for everything that Paul tells us in this chapter. In verse 32, the apostle tells us that human marriage is a mystery. And by mystery, he's not talking about Sherlock Holmes or something. He means there's another meaning in it. And that until now, until the coming of Jesus Christ, 
This meaning was hidden from human perception. New City, this insight into the true meaning, the true purpose of marriage, doesn't come from the Supreme Court of the land. It doesn't come from any cultural consensus or prejudice. This truth, once hidden, has now been revealed to the the world by God in his most holy word. And what we read in verses 31 and 32 is that human marriage between a man and a woman is what's called a type. It's a picture. It's a display. Marriage was always meant by God to be a portrait of something else. Hear that again. Marriage was always meant by God to be a portrait of something else. The relationship of Jesus Christ to his church. A union the Bible calls a one flesh union. In other words, the relationship of Jesus to his bride, the church, that's the extraordinary, truly extraordinary marriage, the real marriage, the ultimate marriage, and your marriage, friend, Every marriage represented here today is to be a portrait, is to be an enacted parable of Jesus' marriage to his bride. Because marriage is all about the gospel. Marriage is all about the eternal son taking on human flesh, dying in the place of his bride, rising from the grave, and uniting us with him through his Holy Spirit. And that's true whether you know it or not whether you believe it or not, or have a Christian marriage or not. This means marriage is not ultimately about relational fulfillment. It's not ultimately about sexual fulfillment, procreation, love, or pleasure. All of those things are tied up with marriage, yes, but its ultimate meaning is to be this portrait of the real marriage, the ultimate marriage. Which means every married person here today must ask themselves, is my marriage portrait a good portrait or a bad portrait? What does my relationship with my spouse tell the world, the watching world, about Jesus' relationship to his bride, the church? Is our marriage portrait accurate or is it sinfully distorted? Friends, this is why Ephesians 5 sounds so shocking to us with its headship and submission language. I mean, we're actually reading texts like this out loud in 2023 in Toronto. What's going on? It sounds crazy. It sounds otherworldly because it is. God has raised the bar to an infinite height. Paul is telling husbands, brother, he's telling you, mirror and display the infinite sacrificial love of the eternal son, Jesus Christ, for his bride, the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, sacrificially and for her good, her spiritual good. Paul is telling wives, mirror and display the obedience and the submission of the blood-bought church to her Savior. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands just as the church submits to Christ. Christian, God is calling you to make your marriage like the real thing. Jesus is calling you 
to make your marriage, your earthly marriage, a beautiful masterpiece, an accurate reflection of the original. So let's look first at the husband's part in this portrait and then the wife's. We're going to be working backwards through the text. And heads up, this sermon is going to be lopsided. Uh, Paul devotes three times the space to husbands. And I'm going to do the same. Next week, ladies, it's 1 Peter 3. So you're going to get both barrels in that sermon. You'll be the main attraction. Verse 25 in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Husbands, I want to ask, aspiring husbands, I want to ask, Where is the gospel found in those verses that I just read? It's in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As in on the cross, sacrificially, for her salvation. He gave himself up for her. Which means there is a clear connection between husbanding husbanding, the particular actions of husbanding, and the gospel itself. But first things first. I want us to note that um, headship or leadership is not commanded in this passage. It's just not there. We haven't got there yet in the sermon, but in the text, back in verse 22, Paul has already addressed the women. And said, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So as we move out from verse 22, we might think that the the corollary reading would be husbands lead. Right? So we have wives submit. Husbands lead. It just kind of makes sense. But what does Paul command instead? Husbands love. Wives submit. Husbands love. All right, then, well, why doesn't Paul command headship? Because husbandly leadership is just assumed. The man isn't instructed to head up the marriage because the husband is the head of the wife. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Brother, you are the head of your wife because of creation, not by anything that you do. Go back and read Genesis chapter 2 again sometime. When, When God looks at your marriage, brother, he looks at you as the head. You are the leader in the sense that you are the one who is responsible before God to be leading your wife, your family, in a God-glorifying direction. Now, you may abdicate the throne. You may functionally give up your headship and hand it over to your wife. Or yours may be a domineering, cruel sort of headship. But you cannot evade the responsibility, the accountability before God. And brother, your responsibility as the head of your marriage is to love your wife. To love her. Now, 
the air that we breathe as husbands and wives in the year 2023 is the air of conditional contribution, right? Uh, that the love ethos of our culture is, I will contribute to the marriage and I will love my spouse upon these conditions. Isn't that true? Right? We breathe the air of earned allotment. We tell our spouse, you will earn your allotment of love from me when you have done X, Y, and Z. By the way, ladies, that's my wife right there, so I'm pointing to her a lot of time, not, not you guys, okay? <laughs> we breathe the cultural air of the merit system. I will give you these things once you give me what I deserve, right? You speak my love language, and I'll speak your love language. And that, that accommodates our selfishness very nicely. And husbands, we can look at our wife and we can say in our hearts, without saying in our words, uh, honey, you carry your share of the load and you contribute to the relationship. You provide for my needs and you make me feel really good about you. And then conditioned on the proper fulfillment of those prerequisites, I will give my love to you. But that's not love. The gospel is nowhere to be found in that sort of loveless thinking. And we must apply the gospel, brothers, to our husbandly lovelessness. And so the big question becomes, how does then the death and resurrection of Jesus directly impact my husbanding? How does the death and resurrection of Jesus directly impact my love for my wife? Look in your bulletins. Point number one. A word to husbands and those who aspire to become husbands. Gospel-centered marriages begin with husbands who love their wives as Christ loved the church in his death. Sacrificially and for her good. In other words, Christ's love for the church must be the husband's marital model, number one, in its self-sacrifice. Look at verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, obviously, no husband can die in the place of his wife to pay for her sins like Jesus did. Uh, that's not the point Paul's making. Neither is he asking about a, a home invasion scenario or something. And like, would you, brother, be willing to die in the place of your wife? You get between you and the murderer and you know, there's mortal danger. Um, would we be willing to take a bullet to die in her place? Um, I'm sure all of us as husbands would say yes to that. Yes, we, if, if, it called, if the situation called for that, I would do that. I would place myself between danger, mortal danger, and my wife. I would die for her. But will we live for our wife? That's the question. Will we live for her? The point Paul's making is the husband's love for his wife must mirror Jesus' love for his bride in absolute self-sacrifice. Brother, the text demands that I ask this. In what ways have you sacrificed yourself, your interests, your priorities, your preferences as a mark of love for your wife? How is my love for my wife expressed in any degree by my own self-denial, my own self-giving, my own self-sacrifice? Because Jesus went to the cross for his bride. And that is the standard. 
This means I can put my plans to watch the game on hold and go antiquing with my wife Saturday afternoon if that makes her feel happy and loved. This means I can look after the kids every other Thursday evening and put them to bed so my wife can attend a church prayer meeting. I can hold loosely to my time so I can invest in her. And and make no mistake, brothers, this isn't some huge spousal burden, our husbandly cross to bear, right? Neither Jesus or Paul is patting us on the back and soothing us, saying, there, there, poor, poor little bunny, <laughs> you know. But, but keep your finger on the text here. This isn't merely, merely love for our wife expressed in self-sacrifice. It's self-sacrifice for her good. Christ's love for the church must be the husband's marital model in its goal, Seeking her good and her holiness. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. If I can be honest, that's a text I'd rather not have my wife hear me like read out loud, let alone presume to preach to you this morning. Uh, if, if there is a portion of Holy Scripture that makes me quake with holy fear and where Satan tempts me to despair, it's those verses right there. What right-thinking husband can hear those humbling verses and not pray, Lord, forgive me. In this section, Paul is flipping back and forth between husband and wife, Christ and the church, husband and wife, Christ and the church, and he's drawing out an analogy. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was no mere symbolic effort. It had a purpose. It had a goal. And that goal was for the church's good, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Christ gave himself to the church to make her holy by cleansing her. This cleansing was affected by a spiritual washing brought about through Christ's gracious word in the gospel. Now, obviously, as in all analogies, we can't draw them to the nth degree. If, if they were exactly the same, they wouldn't be analogies anymore. They would be identities. Uh, so, Christian husband, don't take these verses to mean that you're, you're to work to make your wife without wrinkle. You know, as much as she might appreciate a lifetime membership at a spa. Um, here's the point. Brother, love your wife, your love for your wife, a love expressed in self-sacrifice, is to seek her good, her holiness. That's the goal of your sacrificial love. That's its purpose. Right? Therefore, each of us must ask, what is for my wife's good? What will make her blameless, pleasing to God, a whole woman? What husbandly sacrifices of love can I make to contribute to that glorious end? Therefore, part of this means that when we see Unholiness. When we see a spiritual blemish 
in our wife's life, the proper response to it is not to hide from it, but to wash her with the word, the truth of the gospel in love. And this scriptural washing isn't just, isn't just a reaction to her sin. This isn't just about the husband coming alongside his wife with all of his biblical knowledge and piety to reprove her and show her just how sinful she's really being. There's positive formation as well, brothers. Brother, let me ask, do you consider your wife's spiritual maturity to be your responsibility? Do you get up in the morning and think, I'm responsible before God for the spiritual growth, health, purity, and maturity of my wife? Because in God's eye, you most certainly are. You are the one who is to mirror the love of Christ to her. And that's going to involve total self-sacrifice. Jesus gave himself to the church to make her holy by cleansing her. So in light of Christ's complete giving of himself to make the church holy and to cleanse her, the husband must be committed to the total, the total well-being of his wife, especially her spiritual welfare. Especially that. See, that's the difference between a good Christian marriage and a good non-Christian marriage. Because non-Christians have good marriages too, right? This is the difference. A Christian husband is devoted to the spiritual welfare of his bride. He brings the gospel to bear again and again and again. Which necessitates, of course, that he is growing in holiness. He's growing in his life. He's growing in his doctrine, his knowledge of God and the word. The bar is being raised very high here, brothers. Otherwise, he'll be passing along to his wife the merest crumbs, crumbs of a lifelong passive pursuit of God and his word, both to his wife and to his kids. Because if he is a man content with spiritual mediocrity and therefore never acquires much Christian maturity in his outlook on marriage or the high calling of a a Christian husband or fatherhood, motherhood, possessions and wealth, his career, his wife's career, church membership, then what spiritual benefit is he going to be to his wife? How is he supposed to cleanse her? Imagine being married to a professing Christian where none of the matters, none of those matters are shot through with biblical understanding, with biblical prioritization. Imagine being married to a man who is content to spiritually coast through life. Christianity is really is something that he adds to his already very busy life. The gospel isn't something that controls him. It doesn't constrain him. It doesn't shape his vision. It doesn't shape all of his goals. He's not making those important, costly, gospel-prioritizing, best choices as the head of his home. He's not giving patient, biblical instruction to his wife when they have a disagreement. Or in the moments of calm and joy as they walk along a beach. He's actually scared to confront her when she sins. He's indifferent in practice to her spiritual growth. That's that's up to her. That's her job. His motto is, happy wife, happy life. And as long as his wife is happy, however defined, then it's all good. He holds that that popular husbandly mantra, I just want to support my wife in this area of her life and in that area, which then becomes an all-purpose excuse to weasel out of hard 
husbandly decisions and leading with Christian convictions. Now, taken all together, that's a pretty bleak portrait of a man. God, God save you, sisters, from a husband like that. Uh, so make sure that you do your you do your due diligence while you're dating. Right? There, there are no guarantees, but be sure you're doing your part, sister. Make sure he's a baptized member of a good church, a man with some track record of Christian faithfulness, before you start getting serious. You're submitting to this man. And if you are married to such a man, as I've been describing, thanks be to God for grace to repent. Right? Thanks, thank God for the convicting work of the Spirit in that man's life. Things can change. Thank God for his sustaining grace. Because Jill will tell you there is much in my wicked heart that is prone to all that sin and much worse besides. But then there's the other sort of husband, the kind of husband, brothers, we all must pray for grace to be the Ephesians 5 husband. The kind of husband who is truly seeking to love and lead his wife in the way of godliness. A considerate husband who treats his wife with respect as the weaker partner and as heir with him of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder his prayers. We'll be looking at 1 Peter 3 next week, Lord willing. That's from where that text is from. The kind of husband who loves his wife just as Christ loves the church, sacrificially and for her good. He is a holy man, a man of prayer, a humble man, a man who serves, a man who says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. A man who trembles at God's word. A man who takes his role as the God-ordained head of his family seriously. He, he deeply desires to move his family in a God-glorifying direction, even at not, not some little cost to his worldly comfort, his reputation, his career, his finances, his free time, his convenience. He's a man who chooses what's best for his family, judged from the perspective of the truth of the gospel and God's word. A man who prioritizes his marriage. A man who prioritizes his, his involvement in the local church. A man who sees the high calling of biblical fatherhood and biblical motherhood and guards them both. A man who is not afraid to tell his wife that he has sinned, that he is in the wrong. He's a man who is not afraid to tell his wife that she has sinned, that she is in the wrong. That her outlook on this or that matter or her behavior is not as biblical as it should be, and he won't allow her just to vent her anger, her pride, her judgmentalism. He won't allow her to wallow in ungodly fear and anxiety. Instead, he will lovingly, patiently help to move her in a Godward direction, and he's able to do so humbly, with love, and without moral condescension. He will open up the scriptures to her and wash his wife in the word because he wants to present his wife back to God on that final day as a pure bride without spot or wrinkle. Beloved, that special sense of husbandly responsibility is not authoritarian or autocratic or domineering or bossy or oppressive or abusive. It's simply servant leadership. And the wife of such a man will be gloriously stretched. 
I've yet to meet a wife who's sorry she's married to a man like that. Because when God designs a thing like marriage, he designs it for his glory and our good. New City, Christ's love for the church must be the husband's marital model in its self-sacrifice, in its goal, and thirdly, in its self-interest. Look at verse 28. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So do you see there's a kind of identification the husband makes with his wife, even as Christ identifies himself with his church. And from God's perspective, this is really an act of self-love, but it's a good kind of self-love, right? Because the husband and wife are one. Then the husband's self-interest is in the couple's self-interest, right? If we're one. The husband's self-interest is the couple's self-interest. Christ's self-interest is the good of the church. After all, the church is his body. He lives in the church by his spirit. And what's good for his church is good for him. What brings glory to Jesus is what brings good for the church. Likewise, it's only extraordinarily selfish, individualistic thinking that pits what's good for me over against what's good for Jill. That's crazy. Our, our ships are sailing in the same direction. We're in a one flesh union. Pursuing Jill's interest is also pursuing my best interest and vice versa. What's good for me, what's good for Jill, and what's good for us, it's all bound up together with being one. We can see this in concrete terms. Think of the description of the wise woman in Proverbs 31. Uh, this wise woman... Famously, she's doing all sorts of stuff. She's very busy, sacrificial. She's hardworking. She's a godly woman who fears the Lord. Then we come to these extraordinary verses of between 21 to 23 of Proverbs 31. I'll just read them to you. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in the linen of fine purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. In other words, she's being so industrious and so forth that her husband's role and place in the culture is augmented. But that increases her place too. Right? The two are tied together. Her prominence in the home, her activity within the community, her entrepreneurship, her help to the poor, that all forms the foundation of her husband's respected position among the city's elders. Husband, do you want to be exalted in the kingdom of God? then you must humble yourself. Do you want to live? Then you must die. Do you want to be a leader? Then you must serve. Do you want to enjoy a full and intimate union with the woman to whom you are pledged in marriage? Then seek her interest, and you'll discover you're seeking your own. Christ's love for the church must be the husband's marital model in its self-sacrifice, in its goal, in its self-interest. All right, then. In our closing ten, ten minutes, point number two in your bulletin, a word to wives and those who aspire to become wives. In a gospel-centered marriage, the wife submits herself to her husband as the church submits to Jesus. 
Lord willing, I'll be filling in this theme more completely next week when we consider 1 Peter 3. Today, I'm just kind of priming the pump. Uh, Sisters, just as gospel-centered marriages need a particular kind of husband, right? A sacrificially loving husband. So they need a particular kind of wife, a submissive wife. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, it's not as popular a phenomenon as it once was, but maybe about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, it was very popular. Have you ever been rickrolled? Do you know what that is, right? For the uninitiated, that's when a link is provided in a website which seemingly is, it bears upon the topic at hand, but actually leads to Rick Astley's 1987 MTV music video, Never Gonna Give You Up. So it's a bait and switch, right? You click the link in good faith, and bam, there you got this guy dancing around. And you think you're getting one thing, but you're really getting another. And sometimes people feel like they've been rickrolled between verses 21 and 22. That there's been a bait and switch, Verse 21 sounds like the apostle is talking about mutual or reciprocal subordination, doesn't it? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As in, there is no authority figure in marriage. There are no gender roles. Functionally, both husband and wife submit to each other. There is no leader. There is no submissive party. The roles are equal. But that's a mistake, and it's a very appealing kind of mistake to make it, particularly in this culture. Uh, We need to look at verse 21, friends, as a general heading. What Paul is speaking of in verse 21 is not mutual, reciprocal subordination, but rather submission to those who are in authority over us. Paul's urging spirit-filled believers to be submissive to the appropriate authorities out of reverence for Christ. And in the flow of the chapter, that's wives to husbands, Children to parents, slaves to masters. That's the flow of the, t- of the context, and context is king. Ladies, no one can force you to submit to your husband. You must choose to submit in obedience to verse 21 and 22. Your submission is an action of your wifely will. And as a Christian woman, you are to voluntarily put yourself under the authority of the God-sanctioned head of your home, your husband. And ladies, why are you willingly to submit to your husband in everything? Because ultimately your submission is Godward. It's God directed. Look at verse 22. You are to submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Sister, that means your submission to your husband is a component of your greater submission to Jesus Christ. Submission to your husband and submission to Jesus are not two different things in your life. I say that again. Submission to your husband and submission to Jesus are not two different things in your life. Your motive in submitting to your husband is to submit to Christ. Remember the revelation of the mystery we spoke of earlier. The husband is a picture of Jesus. The wife is a picture of the church. There is automatically an authority structure in place within marriage. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. So when a Christian wife submits to her husband, when she submits willingly and joyfully, when she submits to her husband as a God-ordained authority in her life, when she submits to him in everything, she is modeling 
the church. She's a picture of the church, of Jesus Christ, the bride in that ultimate sense, that ultimate bride, who submits to Jesus, her bridegroom, in everything. Paul is not sexist. Paul is not a misogynistic barbarian. He just sees the real picture behind human marriage. That's why this sounds so otherworldly. And so he writes in verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, that is an intimidating statement, and we need to be careful. We don't make this mean more than it actually says. If you want to be ridiculous, I could say, you could say that I could order Jill to jump off a cliff, and she would have to obey me because the Bible says she's to obey me in absolutely everything. Uh, But, of course, we know that a wife is to submit to to a higher authority before a lesser one. Right? There are degrees. The whole idea of a hierarchy of authority is that there are rulers higher than others. And if a lesser ruler tells us to disobey a higher ruler, then we must obey the higher ruler. So, Jill, uh, anything I say to you that contradicts the rightful authority of government, for instance, or of God, you can ignore me. But let's not make submit to their husbands and everything mean less than it says either. Ladies, this is an all-encompassing phrase, which means you really are to obey your husband in everything that isn't directly contradictory to what a higher authority says. Christian wives are not free to follow their husband's leadership or ignore it as they see fit. Really, the only time you are to disobey your husband and not follow his leadership is when you come to him with your Bible and say, here's what God says that I may not submit to you. And ladies, this is the role that God has given you. A role in which you can beautifully display the gospel. Submitting to your husband is not just your wifely duty. right? It's not just your cross to bear. It's your unique calling and privilege. Your wifely submission is the unique way that you can make your marriage a portrait of the real, ultimate marriage. And Paul doesn't apologize for any of this, nor does he come alongside and comfort you ladies in your submissive role, rubbing your back and saying, there, 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 there. As if they were in any way undignified or dehumanizing or negative in any sense. There's none of that. There isn't a whiff of that. Nor is Paul describing a kind of submission that makes the wife completely passive and broken. He's not describing a role that robs you of your will or your dignity, sister. Paul simply and unapologetically describes this position of submission as your God-given role in the created order and your unique contribution to the marriage relationship. No one else can do this, sister. Your husband cannot do what you are called by God to do here. This is your privilege. This is your responsibility. And Paul wants you, the wife, to understand that God has made you to fulfill a unique role in the display of the gospel to this world. And he wants you to embrace this role voluntarily and joyfully. Joyfully. But how do you live with this in view? How do we take verses from the Bible and live in such a way that you are now doing your part to be that beautiful, sharp, accurate portrait of the church, sister? Well, we'll get into this more, much more, next week in 1 Peter 3. But why not begin like this? 
kind of homework for the next week, okay? In your mind, in your heart, in your marriage, always be thinking about this question, ladies. How does the church submit to Jesus? How do we as Christians relate to Jesus? That is how you relate to your husband. It's the same thing for husbands. Brother, how does Jesus love the church? How does Jesus give himself up sacrificially for her and love her for her good? That is how you relate to your wife. Wives, you are your husband's helper. Read Genesis 2 again, which means your life is wrapped up in his. Whatever he longs to be to glorify God, however he intends to use his gifts and passions and calling to live for Jesus Christ in this world, whatever his desires are for your family to be a light to the nations and to live obediently to the word of God, you are called to join him in that, to help him in that. His mission is your mission. His calling is your calling. His passion for Jesus and the gospel is to be your passion. Join him. Serve him. Love him. Respect him. And you will be doing your part in this portrait, this image of the real marriage. Can I ask, ladies, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that this is how God called you to submit to the leadership of your husband? I pray that you do, whether he's a Christian or not, whether it appears to you like he's earned it or not. This is what God calls you to do, and he wants you to do this with joy. And if you don't believe this, if you think I'm talking offensive nonsense up here right now, then you need to look to your Bible and find where God says something different. Sisters in Christ, banish all mock submission. What I mean is silently submitting while internally raging or withholding sex, perhaps, in order to gain authority. Or to use a biblical analogy, putting on head coverings, but all the while functioning as the head of the home. Submission is not that. Beloved, what I want to leave us with today is the truth that at the very core of your wifing, at the very core of your husbanding, must stand the gospel. Christian, are the realities of your married life being daily refined and recalibrated by the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the big question for us today. Lord willing, we'll develop this further next week as we consider 1 Peter chapter 3. Amen.